So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about faith. We've been talking about the dangers of putting ourselves at the center of everything, and today we're finishing that series. We're finishing up, we're concluding it by talking about how did Jesus deal with faith? We've talked about like how do we deal with Christian ambition and how do we deal with being humble? Like where's the balance in there? And today we're talking about how did Jesus deal with faith? What was his process? How did he actually uh, deal with faith? If the church exists to teach people to live and love like Jesus, we need to find out how did Jesus live with faith? We believe that Jesus lived the most abundant human life, the best human life, a life in the joyful presence of God's love. And if we want to live that same life, we need to see how he handled faith. And so we're going to be looking at a passage this morning in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. And this is what it says. When Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, and he says, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him to do something. And this is weird. This seems weird to me. He says, don't tell anybody. Go and show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And yet the news about him spread all the more, and crowds of people began to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And so I think in this passage, in this story here, we have some principles about how Jesus dealt with fame and what Jesus' focus was on in his ministry. But first, before we get into that, we need to talk about leprosy. Because I don't know about you, have you known anybody with leprosy? I haven't. Apparently, there's about 100,000 people in the world. Um, if you go back 50 years ago, there was almost a million people. Um, and if you go back to Bible times, leprosy was relatively widespread. And leprosy was essentially a death sentence. If you got leprosy, you were dead. There was no way to heal it. There was nothing they could do for it. It was a bacterial infection that infected your nervous system. And it usually led to the loss of limbs and appendages, like fingers and toes. Your nose would fall off sometimes. And so people would wrap the stubs of their hands in bandages, and they would wrap their face in bandages. And uh, most of the time they were exiled from the community because they were like, it's probably contagious. And um, so they would put lepers together, sometimes in graveyards, or they would put them into caves, and they would be separated from community. Being a leper meant total removal from your family and your community. You were completely isolated and separated from the rest of your people. Now in the Old Testament, when God outlined the guidelines for the nation of Israel, this people he was going to create to be a platform for his Messiah, Jesus, to come to restore the relationship between God and man. In these guidelines he gave for them as a nation, he outlined a process for if someone got leprosy or they might have leprosy. So if a strange spot appeared on your skin, there weren't dermatologists to go to, right? Like, I've had a big mole on my back. This is probably exactly. But it feels like it's this big. And I got married and I was like, it's fine. And Darby said, you're going to the dermatologist. And they took a knife and they scraped off some of it and sent it away. And they said, you're fine. You just had a giant mole. There's nothing wrong with it. But they didn't have that back then. And so they would go to the priest in the temple. And the priest would look at it and say, okay, this does look a little weird. We're going to isolate you for so many days. And we're going to see if it spreads or if it goes away. 
If it spreads, they're like, leprosy, you're kicked out of the community. And if it goes away, they're like, oh, it was just some kind of blemish, you're fine, go about your life. But to come back from being a leper into community, you had to do the same thing. You had to go to a priest, and you had to say, look, my leprosy is gone. And then they would set you aside for so long in isolation, and they would see if it came back or if you were actually healed. And so that's what Jesus is telling this guy here. He's saying, go to the priest and fulfill the requirements to re-enter society. But he says, don't tell people what I did. Don't tell people that I healed you. Which seems like a weird thing to say. See, Jesus sees this man in need, and the man says, I want to be healed, and Jesus says, I'll heal you. And then he does this unusual thing. He says, keep it secret. He says, don't tell people that I did this. Like, why? Was Jesus ashamed of healing him? No. But Jesus recognized that the people that he would attract with the healing weren't the people who were truly interested in what he wanted to do in them and through them. See, there's such a thing as bad publicity. Have you ever heard that? Like, there's no bad publicity. As long as people are talking about you, it's good. There's some things you don't want people saying about you. You know, there's some things you don't want associated with your name. When a crowd is drawn with the wrong methods, they'll stay with the wrong motives. And Jesus knew that if people were only interested in seeing miracles, then they weren't really interested in what he wanted to teach them about who God was and what man had to do to have a relationship with God. See, Jesus wanted disciples. He wanted students who would study the way that he lived and loved. And miracles tend to attract spectators, not students. So Jesus says, don't tell people about this. I'd rather my disciples tell people about what they're learning about living and loving like me than just someone who says, hey, I saw this miracle, because miracles are going to attract people who aren't really interested in my message. They're just interested in getting dazzled by my power. They like the spectacle of it. So I moved up here from Tennessee uh, four years ago. Not a lot goes on in Tennessee. Like there's not a lot, you can ride four wheelers, you can go fishing, you can go hunting, but there's not a lot going on. And I remembered I lived about five miles, uh, this church I was serving at was about five miles off the highway on this windy country road. And at the end of the road, there was a gas station and then there was a highway. And um, so this one day I come down the windy road up to the highway and there are probably like 20 police cars, six or seven fire trucks, I mean, all kinds of emergency response vehicles. There's been a huge car crash, and there's five or six cars. They actually ended up putting in a red light there instead of just a stop sign after this bad accident. But something curious was happening. People, Tennesseans, were pulling up in their pickup trucks or on their cars, parking alongside the road, sitting on their hoods, watching the emergency take place. They were going into the gas station there, getting snacks, popping open their chip bags, drinking sodas, they had their kids lined up on the hood, watching the emergency vehicles, you know, break open uh, doors on cars and remove people and put them into ambulances. And I'm like, what's wrong with us as humans? Like, people are hurting over here. Some people might even be dead, and people are like, ooh, entertainment. Like, <laughs> something happened in Sail Creek, Tennessee. Like, oh man, we've got to start. You know, people were taking out their camping chairs, and they were all along this grassy area, and it's all lined up like it was a music venue or something. People watching this emergency happen. There was a spectacle, and it attracted a crowd. And Jesus said, I don't want a crowd that's just interested in a spectacle. I'm interested in people who want to become students, apprentices of the way that I lived and loved. See, there were people who were only interested in what Jesus could do for them. Heal my sickness so I can go about my life. 
make my life more comfortable or more easy so I can go about my life. And Jesus had no interest in people who don't have an interest in relationship with him. And there's still people like that today who are like, man, God, I want you to do some stuff for me, but I really don't want to have a relationship with you. Just make my life better. Make my marriage better. Make my workplace better. Give me a purpose or a vision for where you want me to go. But don't interfere with how I want to do things. Just make my life better and let me go on my way. You know, uh, if you remember being in school and sitting in the lunchroom cafeteria, kids could draw a crowd by shooting milk out of their nose. Did you ever see this, like, disturbing things? Like, kids like, I can shoot milk out of my nose. And people gather and like, this is awesome. Just because you can draw a crowd doesn't mean you're drawing a crowd for the right reason. It won't be a very committed or probably very intelligent crowd if you shoot milk out of your nose, but you can draw a crowd. And Jesus wasn't interested in just gathering a crowd. He didn't want to gather an audience for the wrong reasons just to have an audience. Getting a lot of people together wasn't his purpose because he wasn't looking to the crowd to affirm his message. He knew what he was saying was true, and so he didn't need people coming in and saying, yeah, that was a good job, I believe in that. He was more interested in having a few committed people than he was in a great deal of nominally interested people. See, you can change the world with a few committed people, but you can have thousands of nominally interested people, and it won't change anything. Jesus wanted true disciples. He just didn't want to draw a crowd. And so he was interested in quality, not quantity. He didn't want lots of spectators. He wanted serious students of the way he lived and loved. See, Jesus was never interested in entertaining people. He was interested in changing people. That's what he wanted to do. And he says, I could get a big crowd together, but if what I'm saying isn't changing who they are, then they're just getting together for no reason. Now, Jesus did something interesting. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus' life and ministry, he does something really interesting. At the moment when he's at the height of his popularity, when he has the biggest crowds following him, he says his most controversial things. He says his most controversial messages. Now, the tendency is that you get a bigger crowd, you water down your message so you offend less people so you can keep more people, you parse your words, but Jesus actually did the opposite because he wasn't in Jesus wasn't interested in people who weren't invested. And so when he had his biggest crowds, that's when he said his most controversial things. And I think a lot of times we've lost the vision, and I say we as in pastors and in churches, we've lost the vision of Jesus when we're more interested in how we can keep religious people coming instead of how we can build relationships with people outside of the church. We're, we're like, oh, I don't want to say anything that upsets anybody so I can get a biggest crowd as possible. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in it. I'd rather have a few people who are really committed, even if the message is unpleasant or makes you uncomfortable. In fact, we see in John 6, 66, he has this big crowd of people and he begins teaching. And it says in John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. They're like, he's going to preach these kind of hard messages, things I don't want to hear, fine. I won't follow him. He's going to stop doing miracles and start saying hard things that are going to affect my life. Well, forget that. I'm not going to follow him anymore. But the fame of Jesus continued to spread as he healed hurting people. Like this leper. This was somebody who was separated from community, someone who was diseased, someone whose life was over. And he had an encounter with Jesus and everything changed. And I think the fame of Jesus continues to spread that same way today. 
Like, the fame of Jesus is not going to spread by us going up to somebody and shaking them like, Do you know Jesus? He's great! They're going to be like, whoa, like, here's my wallet, just leave me alone, you know? The fame of Jesus is going to spread as dirty things get clean, as lepers become whole, as prostitutes escape bondage, as rich people forgive debts. That's what happened in Jesus' day, and that's still the case in our day. If we serve in the name of Jesus, if we make things right in the name of Jesus, the fame of Jesus begins to spread. And as Jesus' fame spreads, he, he did something interesting here in um, this passage. And it's not just in this passage, it's mentioned several times throughout his ministry. As crowds began to gather around him, he did something. He intentionally stepped away for a time of separation and worship. See, as his fame spread, he was more intentional about being alone with God. Jesus's response to fame was solitude and silence. It was meditation and prayer. And we see this in verse 16. It says, yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Verse 15 says, large crowds were coming to him, wanting to hear him and to be healed by him. And yet he constantly withdrew to deserted places and prayed. So how did Jesus respond to fame? Was he like, yes, I am God himself. You need to come and hear me. I'm going to change your life. He says, hold on, I got to step away. Because fame, Jesus knew that fame was tricky. Fame tended to twist your heart and your intentions. He would focus on meditation and prayer. If we let fame go to our head or poison our hearts, our identity begins to get attached to how big we are. How affirmed we feel by a crowd. How supported we are. And so if a bunch of people show up, we feel successful. We feel good. We feel happy. And if nobody shows up or only a few people show up, we feel like failures. Now, I've preached to three people, and I've preached to 500 people. It's a lot easier to preach to 500 people. Like, it just feels better. You're like, whoa, there's people here. Like, this feels great. Preaching to three people is a lot easier. But if I attach my value, if I attach my feelings to my fame, to how many people I can gather, my emotions are going to be like this, roller coaster. Because one week I'm like, whoa, some people show up. I feel really good. And another week, oh, I'll go down here. I have to find my value in something else other than fame. And culture says, hey, get famous, and then you'll feel great because people will love you. But if you attach your, your feelings to fame, you're going to be up and down, up and down. You're always going to be charting, like, lost some followers, gained some followers. Like Jesus, I have to spend time with God to remember that my value does not come from how many people come to listen to me talk, or how many people affirm what I say, or how many people say, Alex, I think you're doing a great job. See, spending time with God reminds me that my value comes from Him. The danger in this life is that we begin to think our value is based on our fame rather than on our family. It's based on how much we can do or produce rather than on who we are family with. Jesus Christ, God in human form, died for us to make full payment for the selfish things that we say and do and think the Bible calls these things sin. And we all have them. We have some different ones, but we've all done things that are selfish, that are good for us and bad for other people or our world. And Jesus died to bridge a gap between God and between us. He died to trade our crime for his spot in the family of God. Why are we valuable? Because we can get a big crowd to come out and listen to us? Because a lot of people affirm us? 
No, you're valuable because the God of the universe says you're worth dying for. And when I don't take time to go and spend time with God, to pray, to step away from uh, people, and to spend time in God's presence, I forget that my value comes from how He feels about me, the fact that I'm family with my Heavenly Father in Heaven, and I start to think that it depends on other things. I don't know about you, but I'm a naturally insecure person. Like, I walk into a room and I'm like, man, I should just walk out. I feel uncomfortable. Like, you know, I sit down with somebody else and I'm like, boy, they're just so much better than me at everything. Like, everything they do is better than me. Like, man, I wish I had even one of their skills, you know? Like, that's just my natural tendency. I don't know why I'm like that. I think some people are just naturally overconfident and some people are naturally insecure. I've met some people and they're like, yeah, that building's 60 feet, I could jump it. Like, no, you couldn't. And they're like, yeah, I can. I bet I could do it. And they're just super confident. I'm not that way. I'm like, oh, that building's six inches? I don't think I can. I can't, I can't do it. But fame can become a shield because you start to use it as a way to affirm the nagging doubts in your mind that you don't matter. Fame can temporarily make you love yourself because you're like, oh, if all these people love me, maybe I'm worth loving. But see, fame is fickle. We think that fame will meet some of our insecurities and help us feel better, but it doesn't heal insecurities. It just masks them for a moment. And then when your fame falters, or it goes away, and you can look at the most famous movie star or person in the world, and fame has ups and downs, it goes back and forth, and fame is fickle, it doesn't last. See, when I'm insecure, when I'm feeling insecure, it tells me something. It tells me I haven't spent enough time with Jesus, because when I'm with Jesus, he reminds me of how valuable I am. When I'm overconfident, it tells me I haven't spent enough time with Jesus because he reminds me that I couldn't do anything without him and that he died for me. If we attach our emotions to our fame rather than to our Heavenly Father, we'll constantly fluctuate how we feel. So Jesus here, we see, he made it a common practice. Verse 16 says he often withdrew. This was his common practice to separate himself from applause and recenter himself on his relationship with his Father in heaven so he knew and was reminded about where his value came from. Because this same crowd right now who's cheering him on and like, Jesus is awesome, is going to be a crowd in a couple months who cheer and say, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus says, if I allow my feelings to be attached to what they say about me, I'm going to go up and down. But if I allow my feelings to be attached to how my Heavenly Father feels about me, it's never going to change. See, if Jesus had to do this, how much more so do we need to step out of the spotlight, step into the throne of God, and say, God, remind me about why I'm loved. Remind me about where my value comes from. Remind me about why I matter, because I'm part of your family. Now this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. Just like the leper was cast out of community, our sin, the self-destructive tendencies we have to do what's best for us, even if it hurts others or to hurt our world, that breaks our communion with God. And this morning, as we celebrate communion, we celebrate that because because of Jesus, we can live in community with God. Like the leper, we were cast out from community, but because of Jesus, he healed the leper and he heals us so that we can live in community with God. See, Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed to bridge the divide between God and man.
Before Jesus was crucified, he, partake, he partook of a Jewish festival called Passover. And Passover was a time when they would take unleavened bread and they would take wine and they would celebrate the night they had escaped from slavery in Egypt. When the angel of death had passed over and all the firstborn in Egypt were killed, but not the Israelites because they put blood on the wood above their door. And Jesus said, this festival that you've been celebrating, this escape from slavery and from death has been about getting out of Egypt. But he says, now I'm telling you, it's actually about me. And he says, from now on, I want you to do this to remember me and what I did for you. Because we didn't escape from a physical slavery, but we escaped from a spiritual slavery. And Jesus' death also helped us escape permanent death, permanent separation. We can re-enter into community with God. And so as Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his followers, as you go everywhere and you teach people to live in love like I do, uh, like I did, I want you to remember me by observing communion. Now, communion is reserved, the Apostle Paul tells us, for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Those who have said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. If you're like, I'm kind of on the fence, I'm still just trying to figure it out, just hold off. That's okay. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is a way to remember that he broke his body for us. And he shed his blood for us so that we can live in community with God forever. So that we can know that our value doesn't come from how many people affirm us, how many people applaud us, but how our Heavenly Father feels about us. Enough to lay down his life so that we can live in community. <coughs> In Luke 22, 19 through 20, Jesus said this. He took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which I give for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new promise in my blood, which is poured out for you. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to come up, break up a piece of bread, and just dip it in the uh, grape juice. And I invite you to come and do the same as music plays. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that we can have value, not because we work really hard, or because we can attract a big crowd, or we can have a lot of people who affirm or applaud us. I'm thankful that we have value because you said we're worth dying for. Thank you for laying down your life so that we could live in the presence of God's love. Lord, we are so grateful that you love us, not because of what we've done, but because of who you are. And today, Lord, I pray that as we remember your sacrifice and we remember you, I pray that we will re remember that we are greatly loved by you. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.